This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Women on the Waves, a show focusing on issues affecting women, here on Christchurch's community access station Plains FM. Welcome to Women on the Waves today and we'll be interviewing Shona Lee Cumbers. Shona Lee is a Drusilla storyteller from the Yiddish oral tradition. She's internationally acclaimed and is, seems to be constantly on the road or a plane travelling across the UK, Europe, North America and now to New Zealand. So in the UK, she was Deputy Storytelling, Storytelling Laureate from 2010 to 2012. She's the Artistic Director of Phrase Arts. She has performed at the Barbican, the Royal Albert Hall, and was the first artist to be commissioned to create a piece for the Festival at the Edge way back in 1998 with the Tower of Bagel. Since then, she has returned with commissions such as The Fool of the Warsaw Ghetto, The Golem, the Ruby Tree, The Golden Labyrinth, and she's also completed commissions for the British Library, British Museum and the Hay on Wye Literature Festival. Kia ora, Shona Lee, and welcome to Women on the Waves. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Now then, I just thought before we start, can you just clarify for the listeners what we mean by storytelling? Because quite often when people hear storytelling... They think about a story being read aloud to them and something that's specifically for children. Yes, of course. For me and in my tradition, a story was for the whole community. Um, Many stories told to adult audiences. They were told, they were oral, and because they were held by women and women at the time that they were passed on didn't read and write, they were held orally. And to this day... You know, good storytelling, storytelling for me, is an oral story. There's no book involved. Uh, I mean, I'm quite dyslexic, so that's a good thing for me. And it is a, it's a communication. It is a story told to listeners, and it contains wit and wisdom and the knowledge of our ancestors that is as relevant today and the humor that uh, shows us how to kind of... Uh, deal with our everyday lives and it's just very good entertainment as well it is it is that indeed yeah now you last came to us back in 2014 when you told the tower of bagel here and now you've you've returned here and what is it exactly that you've just been doing this weekend this weekend we've been doing a thing called tellers tales and tradition and I can expand on that a little if you'd like. Yes, um, please. In the, in the modern context, when you go to a storytelling festival or a storytelling club, you will traditionally hear a 20-minute story or you know a performance of two 45-minutes. But traditionally, that's not how stories worked. And in the Dritzilla tradition, they would last over days. They were latticed in and out of each other, you know, like a good soap opera. You would come every night and hear the Dritzler tell the next instalment of the story, if you like. 
And a long time ago, I would pick out stories, but not tell in the traditional way because there just wasn't a platform for it. Mm -hmm. And we have, also have a company called The House of the West Wind and a wonderful program director. It's lots of women supporting the tradition, which is fabulous. We call them the women of the West Wind. And our program director is a woman called Deborah Barker. And she suggested that we run these weekends and the, where we could tell the story traditionally. So it runs from a Friday night to a Sunday lunchtime. And it means that the story is told. You can stop. You can ask questions. You can debate. You can disagree. You can argue. You can clarify. You can go, oh, that reminds me of something. So it's not just the dritzilla, not just the storyteller there telling a story to a passive listening audience. It is a dance between the listeners and the storyteller and the, the listeners direct where the story goes because they can ask for the stories. So I will say that's another story and they will say for another, another time, time, but we'd like to hear it now. And so that it's another storyteller has to tell that story. And so that's what we've been doing in Wellington this weekend. It was full to the gunnels, uh, <laughs> which is an English saying, which was great. And then uh, 10 or 11 extra people came on the Saturday night because there's standalone stories on the Saturday night. And uh, we just had the most wonderful journey. And we were telling a story called The Ruby Tree. Now, that's what you're going to be telling down here in Christchurch as well as part of the Tellers Trails and Traditions workshop here on the 15th to the 17th of March, isn't it? Indeed it is, yes. I look forward to it. It's a beautiful story, yes. It's a story of, of love and loss, of misunderstanding, of how we can love our children, e even though sometimes they can uh, be transformed. Uh, it's about the power of family, and it's this wonderful, magical story. Now, the ruby tree is very special, isn't it, to you? It was a tale that your, your grandmother told a lot, I understand. Would that be right? She did, yes. She told it an awful lot. And uh, one of the places she told it was in the camps, the concentration camps, because it, it is a story about unborn generations, um, mm. uh, a tree that is supposed to give life from its pomegranates is cursed by a witch and those children can now never be born mm -hmm. and uh, and the, the curse is broken but she would tell this and it only struck me recently you know when when you come from a Jewish family that has lived through the Holocaust you are aware of all the generations that haven't or could not be born and she would tell this in the camps because she had this wonderful saying she said not every story has a happy ending but every story should begin with outrageous hope and what women do best is outrageous hope mm. and that's uh, something that resonated in in your story the the fool of the warsaw ghetto as well isn't it it is yes yeah. it's a reoccurring theme i think yes Sounds definitely and, and and I think especially at the moment, you know, we're living in, shall we say, interesting times. And people need to know that their ancestors have been here before. If we listen to our ancestors, you know, that there is a wisdom there. 
there is almost a blueprint for ways to walk through these trials that we're going through. And we just need a little hope, a little magic and a little common sense as well. <laughs> Lovely. Now, with the um, the Drusilla tradition, you've touched on it on a, there in, in our question, but it is it was very specifically a, a female tradition and uh, an oral tradition. But it, there are very few Drutzelas remaining that, that we know of. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, yes, of course. Well, it, to start with, the tradition was passed down. It was peculiar to the Netherlands, uh, to the lowlands mm-hmm. in Europe. So first of all, you know, they're quite a small area. It was passed down from grandmother to granddaughter, so the elderly passing it down to the younger generation. And I think for two reasons. One, a uh, purely practical reason, the mother would have probably have many children. She was probably working. She was trying to run the house. She wouldn't have had time. So there's a very practical reason why it went grandmother to granddaughter. Mm-hmm. But I also think on another level, you have a very different relationship with your grandmother than to your mother. Mm-hmm. Yes. So so that was the first thing. Now, if you think this was a tradition that, that existed within the communities, and it was oral, totally oral, nothing ever written down, and it was a huge lexicon of knowledge, and I, I think almost a way of educating girls by stealth, because <laughs> uh, we're doing a workshop next week using a lot of these techniques, and I wish I had the details to tell you, but we have... One place left, if anyone would like to join us. And we're using these techniques to apply to story. But it was, I think, a way of teaching women by stealth Mm -hmm. uh, at a time when they they couldn't read and write. Uh, Well, not that they couldn't, but they weren't allowed. So you had this huge oral memory training techniques and storytelling techniques going on. And it was so common that it wasn't considered worthwhile writing it down. It's like... I bet if you look round in your studio right now, you'll see a cup or a, or a tissue or something like that. Something that is so common that when you've finished with it, you'll put it in the bin or hopefully recycle it. Um, and uh, But it wouldn't occur to you to put it in a museum or treasure it or cherish it. Mm-hmm. Well, such was the tradition, really. Um, it was that common. And what's happened is, you know, you got the First World War where there is much more movement going on between communities. So the communities are starting to break up. And of course, with the coming of the Second World War, that was the real death knell, really. A lot of Dutch Jews didn't get out. Uh, They didn't get away because they considered themselves primarily Dutch citizens. Mm -hmm. And they were quite secular, so they were Jews secondary. So they, they didn't escape. And you can imagine if you were an elderly Jewish woman or a very young Jewish girl, your chances of survival in those camps were slim, possibly no more than two hours in some cases. So that is pretty much why something that was flourishing, really, uh, but never documented, Mm -hmm. but kind of local knowledge, if you like, was known, went from that to pretty much near extinction in the space of about five years with those mass exterminations. Why am I probably the last one? I don't know I am, and, and we, we are researching and hoping that we, we find others, um, is because my bubba, my grandmother, 
she was very uh, canny, uh, very <laughs> wise. She could see patterns. She could see what was happening. And she managed to bribe somebody to put my mother on one of the last kinder transports out mm. of Holland. So my mother went to England to live with her great aunt, who'd already gone out to England after the First World War. So my mother was safe. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody else in our family got out. And uh, my bubba survived, mainly because she could sing, she could play a musical instrument, and she could tell stories. And that the camp guards had a strange fascination for culture, and I use that term in air brackets as I mm -hmm. speak, you know. So she survived, and she was living with my mother and father when I was born. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know why she did it. Maybe she did it because it was the last chance. Maybe it was therapy for her. She'd carried this tradition, and, and she often says it, it held her sanity a lot of times. So from the age of four, which is the traditional age that you started learning, she was my main carer, mm -hmm. and she just poured the tradition into me in the traditional way. So... That's almost what you would call a perfect storm, you know, to have Adritzilla being able to teach in the traditional way, her granddaughter, a four-year-old. The chances of that happening are quite rare. You've got a lot of the Jewish people arriving in at the docks at Haifa didn't want to remember whether mm -hmm. the, the old ways. For them, it was a new life. They didn't want to think about what they'd gone through. Yiddish, which is the language that most of it was passed on and was dying. People didn't want to, my mother's generation didn't want to speak Yiddish. They wanted to speak the new languages. Again, they didn't want anything to do with the old world. And very few people were documenting Jewish folklore and wonder tale at that time because it didn't seem important after everything else. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the Folklore Institute at Haifa, where they have thousands of Jewish folktales thanks to a wonderful man called Dov Noy, the proportion of Dutch Jewish folktales they have compared with the thousands that they have mm -hmm. are two. I mean, just two. Because right. most Dutch Jews didn't get out because they didn't think it would happen to them. And so we spend a lot of time trying to find other Dritzillas. And what we tend to find is people in their 80s and 90s mm -hmm. that will go, I remember hearing a Dritzilla as a child. I think my grandmother might have been one because the way you tell and some of your stories are resonating. I'm remembering them. So it's almost the generation that would have listened to the Dritzillas that we're finding. But you would have had to have been trained during that period when it was almost becoming extinct. So, And because it was so peculiar to the Netherlands. So we, we, mm. we keep looking and who knows? My, my husband's a Quaker. He says, if we ever do find another Dritzilla, it won't be long before the two of us are arguing about which is the right, right way to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, that's what life is. But but that kind of explains, I hope that it kind of explains why it's such a rare, uh, it does, yeah. rare thing. Yeah. So, um, okay. 
Now, that a part of what you're explaining to us there and, and illustrating is part of the, the long weekend that you're doing next weekend up in Wellington. That's the word dancing, creative writing and storytelling. It's giving people a very brief introduction and overview over over those um, five days in that tradition, isn't it? It's just, just a very sort of um, introductory overview because you can't... Con- distill all of that down into one weekend but you can give a taster no no but we are giving them a set of tools really Mm -hmm. that they can take away and use with their own writing or their own storytelling it's the tip of the iceberg i call it midrash light um (laughs) so they'll go away with like a little tool set um, Mm -hmm. and hopefully it will whet their appetite and they'll want to come back and do some more you never know and do more, yeah. And also because that what you are, what I've seen that you've been working on is is actually telling the tales of the of the gem cycle of which the ruby tree is part, and and recording them so that part of it is also part of you. The work that you're doing now is recording some of these tales so that they are here for posterity, if you if you like. Do you think yes, that's fair? Yes, my husband's a folklorist, Simon Hayward. And he comes along a lot of the time in the UK or the Netherlands and records the stories as we tell them. And we had a momentous moment last November where we recorded the... uh, You have 12 cycles of stories and they're all named after a rabbi. I won't go into that. It's nothing to do with the rabbi. It's more of just like a date stamp. Ah. And then within each of those cycles, there are many, many sort of big stories that also contain more stories. So you have the cycle of Manasseh, and in the cycle of Manasseh, you have the ruby tree, the diamond girl and the goat hornbee, the opal forest, the emerald sea, the sapphire staff, Tobias and the snow tear, the cloth of hope and sorrow, and the 10 wonderful things. And last November, we finally recorded the 10 wonderful things that meant for the first time in the history of this tradition, possibly the world, we actually now have a whole cycle recorded and archived so that those stories now won't be lost. And now we're just trying to find a way to pass them on to people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's that's fantastic to know that, you know, that these stories are being recorded and that there, you know, there will be a record of them there. Now, we've just got a few minutes remaining. So I just want to highlight to listeners that um, if Shona Lee has whet your appetite here, um, we have a performance of The Golem. Um, the tale that inspired Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but it's based on the Golem of Prague, and that is being told on Thursday, the 14th of March at 6 o'clock at Taranga, and that is a free event. It's part of the signature programme at Christchurch City Libraries. Then if you want to totally immerse yourself in storytelling, we have the Tellers, Tales and Tradition Workshop, 15th to 17th of March at Avebury House. And on the Saturday, the 16th of March, we have very limited places available for to come and hear you tell um, the Ruby Tree. And details for that is available at the storycollective.nz. Um, but Shona Lee, thank you for coming along and for telling us all about your um, just a 
such a totally different um, and interesting tradition. I can't wait to have you down here in Christchurch. And for the last few minutes, could you give our listeners a little bit of a taster of what they might expect? Oh, right. Well, I'll tell you a a very brief story, um, and it goes like this. When um, the students of the rabbi that didn't have a lot of money, they would sleep in the synagogue overnight. And it was customary for the bakers, the butchers, the, the, the tradespeople to bring food, whatever was left over. And one night, all of the other students were asleep, and there was Yitzhak and Yaakov. And as they were sitting there, the baker came in and no other food had arrived. And he said, I'm really sorry. I've had a very busy day, but but I I have one baklava left. Um, do, you, do you know what a baklava is here? It's a, it's a very tiny pastry. It's probably no more than an inch by an inch in square. And it's honey and mm. puff pastry and almond. I've just got one baklava left. He put it down on a tray and left. Well, the two began to argue about who should have it and then Yitzhak said well maybe we could we could cut it in half Yakov said that's ridiculous cut it in half more will be left on the knife than there will be to eat no what we must do is cover it over to keep it moist and we must both have a dream and the best dream will get the baklava and so that's what they agreed to do and that night oh did they dream and the following morning well Yakov said such a dream I had, Yitzhak, would you like to hear? I dreamt that they called me Yakov the Wise. And people, well, whenever I met them, I traveled through the world. I could solve every problem. There wasn't a, a thing I didn't know. And, and I spent years solving problems, putting the world to right, until one day I met with an angel. And the angel said, Yakov, you have done such good work that you must have breakfast with the creator and I went up to heaven and I oh it's like such a spread I've never seen such food I tell you God's wife she must be Jewish amazing food and I had breakfast with the creator and with that he smiled and he said I think that story that dream deserves the baklava and he went to put his hand under the cloth to get it we at sack slapped him he said you haven't heard my story yet and strangely enough Yitzhak's story was almost the same they called me Yitzhak they're very wise and I didn't have to travel people came to me and he relates how people came he solved marriage problems he could even get men to understand women now that is wise and clever and almost beyond belief. And, and, and so it went on. And he said, and in the end, an angel too came to me and said, Yitzhak, you, for your hard work, deserve a baklava. And I said to the angel, I couldn't possibly because I have to meet Yakov and, and we must split the baklava in the morning or one or the other of us must eat it. Oh, said the angel, that's all right. I've just come from Yakov. He's having breakfast with the creator, so you can eat the baklava. So, Yakov, I did. And they pulled back the... Uh, the cloth and of course there's nothing left but crumbs on the tray and crumbs round Yitzhak's mouth and that is what we call traumatic logic <laughs> I need to practice magic logic that's what I learned from that <laughs> <laughs> 
Excellent. Thank you so much, Shona Lee. Now, I think what our skill, what we need to learn on, I think it must be quite hard for our audiences, is to um, is to learn to interact. Um, so that I think that we, we, rather than sit and be completely absorbed as a passive audience, it's going to be a real challenge, which we're looking forward to doing next week. Thank you <laughs> so much. And we'll see you thank next you week so much, here in Christchurch. Okay, thank you. This episode of Women on the Waves is brought to you by Christchurch City Libraries.